Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. You gentlemen, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and let's get started tonight. We are going to be talking about the church at Sardis, and this is a lesson that I have entitled The Church of the Walking Dead, because Sardis, as we are going to see, is the dead church. And we're going to see that it is the dead church for several reasons. We're going to talk about those reasons. Um, but we know that it is not God's will for a church to be dead. Because when a church is dead, they're not doing anything that he has told them to do. That church is really useless. So as we look at Sardis, I want you to remember, this was a little literal church in the days John wrote the Revelation, but this is symbolic throughout the ages of all the churches. I know I say that every time we discuss one of these churches, but I don't want you to forget that. Though this is historical, it still has some relevance today because we could fall into the same danger as every single one of these churches, and we don't want to fall into that. And so it starts with us as individual born-again men because we make the, up the whole of the church and so we as individuals have to guard against the things that we are going to see tonight, the things that we have already seen from Ephesus until now, and the things that we will see as we cover the last two churches in the next few weeks of Asia Minor. So again, you have your outline there before you. It's going to look a little bit different. The, the same contents are there. They're just going to be in a little different order, and we're going to see why. We're going to see that when the Lord addresses Sardis, he didn't waste any time. He jumps right into their violation. He jumps right into their problem uh, because it's a big problem. He's going to jump right in. He's going to address that. So the way it's set up this, this evening is communication, location, then violation, then exhortation, then retribution, and then commendation is going to come toward the end right before the application that we're going to look at. But he doesn't commend them as a whole for anything. He only commends a few of them who are still there, who aren't dead. So when we look at this, let us remember, though he's talking to that literal church, he could be talking to you today. He could be talking to this church today. God forbid that he is. But if he is, we're going to look at the part where he urges us to repent. And I pray that if it be an issue of repentance in your life at today, you would repent as you see your need. Because a dead church or a dead church member, is a danger to any assembly, to any group of believers, for many reasons to which we will look at those tonight. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. <clears throat> you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. What a statement. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Those things that aren't dead yet, he says, they're about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. 
But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we look first at the communication, no different than any of the other letters that we have looked at thus far. We know that John received this vision. The angel gave the vision to John from Christ. John is giving this message as instructed to the church, to the messenger of the church, to the angel of the church, the pastor, the leader of Sardis. Again, I remind you, he's giving that message to that pastor so that pastor can relay that message to the congregation, so that pastor can heed the warnings of that letter so that he doesn't fall into the same things that he's discussing here or so that he repents if he has. Because, again, as the pastor goes, so goes the church. He's writing to the church. He's writing to the pastor of that church. He's instructing them. He's giving instructions and warnings to Sardis because Sardis is dead. Sardis is dead. So we know in our time there are many dead churches. The churches who are doing nothing. They exist simply for the sake of existing. He's writing to that church and he's warning them. This message is directly from Christ. He is sending this message so that they can hear it. If you have a red letter edition of your Bible, you will see that these words are in red. This is Christ speaking through John to the church. He wants them to hear what he's saying. That's why he ends every one of these with he who has an ear, let him hear what he's saying to the churches. So we see Christ is here. And as we look at Christ in this, he uses two familiar references that we've already looked at in our previous studies. He says to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. He's talking about Christ. He's wanting them to know that this message comes from Christ. Christ is seen here uh, possessing two things, and we see two references to those things that he is possessing. He is possessing or holding the seven spirits of God. He says, this is the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. We know before that those seven spirits of God were seen before the throne of God. Now we see that he's holding the seven spirits. We see that the Spirit of God is omnipresent, just as the Father is omnipresent, just as the Son is omnipresent, because the three are co-equal in their essence. Christ is holding the seven spirits of God. I want to refresh you on what that means and why that is important, um, because that is the, as we've learned, number of completion. And Christ is complete in His power and His authority, as given by the Holy Spirit. We know that we learned when we 
talked about the seven spirits of God before. We referenced Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, uh, where it mentions this. And going back to that, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, talking about Christ. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of power, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We know that's reverence, and we talked about those things, those seven characteristics, seven attributes of the Spirit, those seven attributes, Christ says, I hold all seven of those attributes. Again, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, co-equal in their essence. He holds those seven attributes, again, to refresh your mind on what they are. The Spirit of the Lord talks about His sovereignty. He then goes in Isaiah and he talks about the Spirit of wisdom. He is the all-wise, all-knowing God. The Spirit of understanding there's nothing that is beyond his understanding. The spirit of counsel. Remember when Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, I'm going to send to you another counselor, a comforter. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. And it was an Allah's comforter or counselor. That means one who is the same as Christ. He is complete, lacking nothing. So the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge, we know that He is all-powerful and He is all-knowing. And then the spirit of the fear of the Lord, which is reverence toward the things that are holy, the things that are God and characteristic of God. So we see that Jesus reminds them that I, I am holding the seven spirits. I am powerful in all that I do. He then says this, and the seven stars. What is he talking about? He's saying, I'm holding the seven stars. We learned this earlier as well. Uh, the seven stars, again, referred to what we saw in our seventh lesson, I believe it was. Um, these are those seven messengers, those pastors. He's holding them in his hand. Um, he's letting us, again, know that I'm still Christ. I'm still in control of all situations in every church. The seven stars, they represent those seven messengers, the seven spirits of God. I hold them in my hand. Nothing has changed. Aren't you thankful that the Word of God tells us that? That Christ is never going to change. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He's reminding them that I am holding you, the church at Sardis, in my hand. I'm holding you in my hand. He reminds them, I'm, I'm sovereignly in control over you. I am still the head of the church. I have every right in the world to write what I'm about to have written through John to you and to address it to you in such a manner because I am the head of the church that was purchased by my blood. He's again, they're reminding them of his right, his sovereign right, his almighty right to rebuke them, and to correct them. Because he holds them in his hand, and he holds the seven spirits of God in his hand. The church belongs to him, and all authority and power and glory belongs to him. It is Christ, again, communicating to his church. And I'm thankful that he's communicating to Sardis, because we're going to see He's going to communicate some things to Sardis that we need to hear, that we desperately need to hear, just as he has communicated things to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira. Here at Sardis, it is very important 
that we understand we are one generation, one generation away from being a dead church. He's writing to Sardis. He's telling them this. Sardis is a very interesting place, and I'll give you a little history behind Sardis. Why? Because I like history, and I like to see. How did all this happen? What is this all made of? Sardis, if you do a little research, you'll find out that it's still exists today. It's a place called Sart. And it's nothing more now today than just a small village in Turkey. But it still exists. But in these days, this town, which is 30 miles south, southwest from where we looked last week, Thyatira, remember we're going on a journey from Ephesus and we're going all the way around and we will make our way to Laodicea in the next few weeks, that lukewarm church that he warns he will spew them from his mouth if they don't repent. We see that as we move in that circuit, we get to Thyatira, we go south, southwest for about 30 miles, and we come to this place known as Sardis. It's located in an interesting spot. It's on a 1,500-foot high hill in the middle of the Hermas River Valley. And so you can just imagine there's this nice river valley, but in the midst of that there is this 1,500-foot elevated area. Now, this hill was steep, and it was rocky on three sides, which made this a very easy place to defend from any attackers or enemies because they couldn't come from three different directions. All that they really had to do was just make sure that the normal, everyday approach was covered for the most part. Uh, that could also, as we're going to see, lead to great arrogance where they would think that we're impenetrable and let their guard down or only watch their 12 o'clock and never think about their 6 o'clock. And we're going to see that they fell into this problem. And in this letter that is addressed to them, in fact, Christ is going to use some language that will remind them of that, that your arrogance can come back and get you. That pride definitely comes before the fall. The Sardis was once the capital of the Lydian kingdom, and this Lydian kingdom lasted between 1200 to, 50, uh, to 546 excuse me, B.C. Um, and, and we know that that kingdom uh, there in Sardis um, was led by the Lydians for that period of time. Uh, during this time and then beyond that time, uh, this was a place, and, and many of you don't realize this because you don't know anything about Sardis, and I didn't really realize this until I began to study this, of uh, gold and silver coins that became very uh, popular and, and very common in the Roman Empire, and then even today uh, we have coins because of this. But gold and silver, silver coins were first minted in Sardis. Sardis was the first place that they had ever um, minted gold or silver coins, and it was during the reign of the, the Lydian king Croesus. This was around 550 B.C. I know to many of you, you say, who cares? This will help you kind of give a timeline of how everything lays out. And that's why it's important. Uh, you're not going to get all of this at once. You're going to get some of these names. Go, go take these names. Do a little further research. Find out who, who are these kings that we're talking about. What does it mean when we talk about the Lydian kingdom? We'll cover it as much as we can. We can't, of course, exhaust it in any of these lessons. But Sardis was conquered uh, many times uh, by the Persians, by the Athenians, 
of the Seleucids, then the Adelids, until eventually it was bequeathed to Rome in 133 B.C. But in 17 A.D., Sardis suffered a great devastation. There was an earthquake that happened at Sardis, and the whole city had to be rebuilt. But during the time of the Revelation, during the time of the Romans, it was a very, very popular place because it was a major producer of an important material that they would make garments out of, and that was wool. And so in its day, um, Sardis was um, an area that produced wool, not only wool, garments made of wool. Of course, when you have um, access to great wool, uh, and you will then, of course, benefit if you take that wool and then you make the garments out of it. And that's what they did. It became uh, one of their important industries. Um, during this time, the population was 60,000 to approximately 100,000 people. Again, today, it's just a small village in Turkey. It's the home of someone who, if you ever had to read this book in school, you didn't like this person very much. How many of you had to read Aesop's fables or portions of that in school? Um, Aesop came from Sardis, and so if you remember reading that in your English class and learning about those things, Aesop and those fables that he wrote, um, he came from Sardis, and so you probably already have a grudge um, against Sardis because of him knowing that he is from there. But worship in Sardis, of course, we have the influence of Greek and Roman mythology, and of course that always leads to the worship of false deities, gods and goddesses when we talk about mythology. And so Sardis, of course, had their share of it. Main thing, we've become familiar with Artemis or Diana, still a portion of the temple of Diana, still there today in Sart. We know she was the goddess of fertility. She was represented by the statues where she would have multiple breasts representing her fertility, and they would worship her um, because she was, of course, um, a goddess of fertility and sexuality and all those things that sinful men crave uh, from their lustful hearts. But there was also the presence, of course, of emperor worship. We have heard about that in just about every single case that we have covered. Um, Roman Empire, empire was inundated uh, with this type of false worship. Worship these false gods, worship these false goddesses, and you better worship the emperor because they esteemed themselves as equal to God. So, of course, most cities in this day inundated with pluralism. Uh, what pluralism is, many religions, um, all sorts of things, um, but also not only pluralism, many religions, but polytheism, many gods, many goddesses. Uh, and this is what, what caused the Christians here to be persecuted. Our Christians were never persecuted just solely on the fact that they believed in Christ. Their main persecution came under Roman authority because they worshipped Christ alone. If they would have ever just said, we're going to worship Christ and all these other gods and emperors that you require that we worship, 
the Christians would have never come under the strict persecution that they came under. However, we know as Christians that we are to worship God and God alone. We are to, by faith, trust in Christ as our Savior and Christ alone. So it brought, of course, persecution. Now in this letter, it's not filled with much persecution because a dead church is never persecuted. A dead church is just dead. They're a threat to no one. In fact, when they excavated Sardis, they found something very interesting. The ruins of a Christian church located right next to the temple of Artemis in the same era. Right next to the temple of Artemis. It was just like they were getting along with each other and like there was no problem. Uh, It was indicating that there was a lack of separation from this paganism. Right, Because a dead church really doesn't care. A dead church has nothing to gain. A dead church has nothing to lose. They're just going through all of the motions. So in the midst of this city, very vibrant city of its day, was a dead church. And we're going to see this about this dead church. There was only a small remnant of true believers remaining in this dead church. It was the home of Melito, who was the bishop of Sardis in 161 A.D., He was quite possibly the immediate leader of the church following the messenger that this particular letter was addressed to. I found that pretty interesting. He recorded in his writings about the persecution of Christians under Nero, Domitian, and the fact that such a prominent figure as Melito continued to pastor this church for several decades after this warning The fact that he did, and the fact that we have that on record, tells us something. That perhaps the church at Sardis did hear the warning, and perhaps the church at Sardis did repent of their sin. Because we know that this church existed hundreds of years after this letter. So we look at the communication, the location. Let's look at the violation. He jumps right into this. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he jumps right into this. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In the other letters, as we have seen, the Lord gives a commendation almost immediately. He lets them know, I see the good things that you're doing but I have this against you. Not true here at Sardis. He jumps out of the gate and says, i got something against you. I know your deeds. And what he's saying is, really, I know your lack of deeds. I know your deeds, or the lack thereof. Nothing goes unseen. That's why he made clear that they knew that it was he who holds the seven spirits of God. He has all knowledge, and he has all wisdom, and he has all power. He says, you're not going to get away with this. You're not going to slip this past me. I know what's going on. I hold the messenger of that church in my hand. Nothing is going to catch me off guard. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. A reputation of being alive, but you're dead. This church was dead. They lacked true faith. Verse 2 says, I have have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. 
indicating their lack of true faith. What does it mean that they have dead faith? We quickly have to go and turn to James and see what James says about dead faith. James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? What did you just tell him? I know your deeds. And I know that you think you're alive because people say that you're alive or that you may have been alive in the past and you have a, a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Why are they dead? James says, what good is my brothers if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? It's not good. It's just talk. And a dead church is always full of talk without action. In the same way, faith by itself, James continues to say, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. And I will show you my faith by what I do. It's very important that we see that. So many of us are content with just sitting in a building and absorbing things and doing nothing. You're in danger of becoming like Sardis. He's saying, I know your works or your lack thereof. I see them. I know everything that goes on. I see how you are lazy and apathetic and complacent. James says, show me your faith with your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Right? Because some people say, well, isn't it enough that I just believe in God? He says, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. The dead church member Simply says, I believe in God, and that's enough. James says, no, it's not enough. In fact, he says, you foolish man. You just believe in God. The demons do that. You've just established yourself as co-equal with the demons. He says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without, without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. It's very important because he said there's that person who says, I have faith, and that other person says, I have deeds. James says, you better have both. He said, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Is that contradicting what Paul said? Absolutely not. This justification here is not justification in the eyes of God. This is justification in the eyes of man. Every man knows this. If you just talk about being a Christian and there is never any action or service that accompanies your Christianity, your faith is dead. You are not justified by the, before the eyes who view you. He goes on and he says this in the same way. Was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So what in the world does James have to do with Revelation chapter 3? Please see the indictment here. This is the indictment from the Lord. He says, you are dead. Even though you have a reputation of being alive, you're dead. 
So we use the analogy of Scripture and say, what does dead faith look like? Dead faith looks like a claim without deeds. You have a sign outside the building that says church, but inside you just have a bunch of warm bodies who are hoping to someday make it to heaven. And doing nothing to shine the light of Jesus Christ into the darkness of this world so men would see their good deeds and glorify their Father who is in heaven. Isn't that our purpose as believers? To do those good deeds because our life has been changed out of appreciation for what He has done for us by His grace to truly go out and to do what He has commanded us to do. And in doing what He commands us to do, we bring God glory through that. And watch this, we bring others to Christ because it's going to give us an opportunity to share the gospel. These people were just content with simply believing in God alongside of all the other false religions that they had surrounded themselves with, right? They believed in many gods. And so they were equal with all of the pagans around them, just settling for belief in God with no change of heart, no change of life, with no deeds to back up. Their claim, their faith was simply talk without action. Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus covers this in verse 21. What does he say? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying? A profession of faith is not enough. Because that profession better be backed up with the evidence of true faith. And what is the evidence of true faith? He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not at Sardis. Sardis, they were content with just receiving the approval of man. He said, your reputation says you're alive, and you're okay with that. People are patting you on the back, telling you how great you are. Any church who sings how great thou art to themselves, they're a dead church. He said, you're content with just having a good reputation, but I know the truth. The truth is that you're dead. And proof that you're dead is because your deeds don't match your claim. This church was dead because their faith was dead. Revealing what? Revealing that they were still in their sin. Isn't that where we all were prior to Christ graciously saving us, dead in our sin, with no good works, no life. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He's talking about our position in Christ. He's talking about grace saving us. He goes on, he says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We all know this next verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? So that no one can boast. Now watch what verse 10 says. Because many times we stop at 
9. Watch what verse 10 says. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Don't say that you've been saved by grace through faith and that your position has changed if you have no good works to accompany that claim. That's the danger that the church at Sardis fell into. Because those who have truly been saved by grace through faith will have predestined good works to confirm their true faith. These works were missing in Sardis. Confirming that they were, for the most part, because we're going to see, and I'm thankful for this, God always reserves a remnant, even if it's a small remnant for Himself. For the most part, this church was spiritually dead. You ever walked into one of those churches? He walked in and they were content with being content. And they were apathetic, going through the motions, and it was obvious. Don't become one of those Christians. Don't become one of those church members. Because it will, will reveal to you that your faith was never true. A church who claims to have faith but is not actively displaying it in obedient works that bring God glory. There's no church at all. They're dead. So we see the violation. He jumps right into that. We're still in verse 1. He didn't waste any time. And I don't waste any time in saying this to you. If you realize today that your faith is dead, I pray that you would cry out to Christ this very evening to save your wretched soul, grant to you eternal life and forgiveness, birth in you life, life to the full, just as He has promised to do for all who trust and believe in Christ. So we move next to the exhortation, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, he says this. He's encouraging them. He's going to exhort them to come out of their dead state and into true saving faith. That's what I encourage you today to do today. If you are dead and you realize that, cry out to Christ. He's the only hope that you have of true faith, true saving faith. He's the only one who can save you. Verse 2, he says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember, he's saying this to the pastor. He's saying, pastor, wake up. Examine those people who are in that congregation who are just barely holding on, right? Their pulse is boop, boop. He said they're barely holding on. He said, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Strengthen what re remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. He said, you're lacking. You're lacking. What does he tell them to do? What is he encouraging them to do? First of all, if you're, you're taking notes, write this down. He's telling them to rise up. Rise up. Wake up from your dead state or your nearly dead state. Just as Jesus called Lazarus up from the tomb and out of his physical death, Jesus here is calling Sardis out of their spiritual death. He's calling them to wake up, rise up. Stop settling for apathy and complacency and deadness. Secondly, he leads them not only to rise up, 
He leads them to restoration. Watch what he says next. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains. Rise up and restore. Strengthen. Trust in God's strength to bring revival and life to this nearly completely dead body with the exception of a few. I'm a believer that God does not desire that any of his churches exist as dead because that marks them as no true churches at all. I believe God's desire is this, that there is a small remnant of true believers there that he desires to bring great revival. I can tell you this, I pastored a church in Arkansas for seven plus years. When I got to that church, it was the church at Sardis. All but dead. I remember my first Sunday as the pastor. I preached to 14 people strong. And none of them were strong, I assure you of that. But I got to watch God bring a revival as we strengthened that small remnant who held on to faith in Jesus Christ. and Held on to a revival that they believed God was able to do. And He did. So he's telling them, restore, strengthen, come to your feet, come to your senses. Then he says, remember. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. He says, remember, before he gets to the repentance, and the remember is this. What is he saying? What you have received. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember the church at Galatia who was confused about the gospel, and Paul writes to them, flip over there, Galatians chapter 1. These people were being sideswiped by another gospel. Paul was reminding them of the true gospel in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned, as we have already said. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Paul was taking a stand there at the church at Galatia, and he was saying, I know that another gospel has crept in. Here at Sardis, I assure you this, another gospel had crept in. It was a gospel that was absent of works and good deeds to bring God glory after salvation. That's not the true gospel. Any gospel that tells you, be saved and just be content with doing nothing from that point until you get to heaven and everything's all right. That is a false gospel. Why? It contradicts what Jesus himself preached. Jesus himself preached that your life will be accompanied by obedience to the Father. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. Do we enter into heaven because we do the will of his Father? No. We do the will of his Father because we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we are on our way to heaven, and that is proof that we truly are alive in Christ. Sardis was struggling here. He says, remember, remember the gospel. Remember the truth of God's word. 
that foundation that you were once built upon. Remember the love of Christ, the life that He brings. Remember the importance of obediently serving Christ in your deeds. I once knew a pastor who would remind himself and his congregation every single week to remember a command that the Lord gives. And he goes something like this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise or glorify your Father who is in heaven. We see his exhortation here. His exhortation is, repent of your deadness. Remember Christ. Remember the gospel. Remember the commands of God, the truth of the word of God. Be restored to strength through the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting Him to bring a revival to you. Rise up and wake up. It's time. You've been dead and have been borderline dead for long enough. So we move in the next part of verse 3 to the retribution. He's going to tell you here, and to tell Sardis here, if you don't heed the Lord's exhortation that we just looked at, then here's what's going to happen. He says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is not talking about the second coming of Christ or the rapture. Uh, Many times we see the term thief and we want to plug it in. He's not talking about that. He's talking about I will come like a thief in judgment. I will come to you and I will exercise my holy, righteous judgment upon you. He says, I will come when you don't know it. You don't know the time. But I'm telling you this, I'm not going to settle for my church being dead. He's telling them to heed his warnings. I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I'm coming. This was a warning of imminent and swift judgment from the Lord. They didn't take his words seriously. He was assuring them of this. Judgment is about to fall. This was a clear warning. It was a clear warning, especially to those living in Sardis, who would have known the history of the region. They would have known the history of Sardis, how that enemy can come as a thief in the night, and that enemy can overwhelm you in just a moment's notice. When we're complacent, when we're arrogant, When we're prideful, judgment, destruction can come upon us swiftly. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. We know what it says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 18, 12. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride brings him low but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. This reference that Jesus was using here of coming judgment, if they did not hear his warnings to repent, it would have stricken a nerve with the people in Sardis. Why? Because they were invaded 
two different times on two different occasions due to pride and arrogance and complacency. Oh, he who knows all things knows the history of Sardis when he words it like this. I'm going to come and I'm going to execute swift and imminent judgment upon you if you don't repent like a thief in the night. In 549 B.C., the armies of the Persian king Cyrus, uh, they stealthily climbed what was thought to be the impenetrable cliffs of Sardis. Uh, As the king sat there, that Lydian king sat there on his throne, Croesus thinking to himself, no one can conquer me here in Sardis. Persian armies in a stealthy manner climbed up those cliffs one by one in the middle of the night when they least expected it and overthrew Croesus and his kingdom. Not only that, they knew of this in 214 B.C. Sardis fell to invasion again due to their arrogance. You would think they would learn the first time. Due to their pride, again, due to their complacency, Sardis falls to another invasion. This time, it was from someone doing almost exactly the same thing. It was Antiochus, who we know in history to be the third Antiochus, who was Antiochus the Great. He was a Greek Hellenistic king. I know this is a lot of information, but the Hellenistic period was from the death of Alexander the Great to the beginning of the Roman Empire, and that is known as the Hellenistic period. During this period, um, this king, Antiochus, decided that he would overthrow Sardis. He was the sixth ruler in the Seleucid Empire. You can go look that up and find out all about that. Um, And he used the arrogance of those in Sardis to gain control of the city. He knew this about them. He knew that they were content with only guarding the main route into that city. He knew that in order to achieve his task, all he would have to do was choose another route. So Antiochus became allies with Attalus I of the Attalid dynasty. We have mentioned that already. And he became allies with him in order to overthrow Achaeus. And they were going to overthrow Achaeus. And who Achaeus was, he was a king who just arrogantly appointed himself as the king of Asia Minor. And He then arrogantly thought that he would be safe and sound in his newfound kingdom of Sardis that he controlled. However, Antiochus, along with his skillful climbers, they climbed these cliffs, and they captured, and they brutally killed Achaeus. And they claimed the capital of Sardis as theirs. So needless to say, Um, This warning of swift and imminent judgment as a thief in the night was something that they should have been familiar with. The Lord knows exactly what He's doing. I assure you of this. He was speaking in their terms. As they slept this night, only guarding that one route, 
they were defeated. The Lord Jesus is saying this, that's not going to be the only defeat that you know of. If you continue in your pride, in your arrogance, in your dead religion, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring my judgment upon you, Sardis. So we move to the commendation, because he does condemn, though he doesn't condemn anything as a whole, he condemns the few. Watch what he says here in verse 4. He says, you have, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He gives them commendation to the few. That select few, the remnant who was left, he reminds them of the great doctrine of perseverance once again. He uses the term, he who overcomes. He who overcomes this deadness. He who overcomes dead religion. He who overcomes false faith. He who overcomes all of the pluralistic, polytheistic things that are going on around them in the name of idolatry and false pagan worship. He's talking to the overcomers. Those who will persevere. Who are they? Overcomers are the true believers. There were some true believers there. Be they but a few. How do we know that that's the true believers? Because 1 John chapter 5 speaks of this. Verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Not some of them. Not hopefully. Not maybe. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He says, those who are there, who truly have faith, you're an overcomer. You will overcome. And those who overcome, He gives them some promises. As He gives many promises in His Word to those who by faith trust in Jesus Christ. He tells this remnant, there are a few of you who have not soiled your clothes You're undefiled. You're true believers. You've not soiled your clothes with sin and death, paganism. You've been set free from these things in Christ. You're the true remnant. You belong to Christ. He says, you'll walk with me dressed in white. You will walk with me dressed in white. He's talking about again That millennial kingdom that we will learn much about in this study that we've not yet gotten to yet, but we've seen glimpses of it. Revelation chapter 19, we referenced it last week. I want you to look at it again. We referenced it for a different reason last week. 19.11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Verse 14, and this is what I want you to pay attention to. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white 
and clean. Those are the saints of God. Those are the angelic beings. Those are the armies of God who will return with Christ when He comes in complete glory and victory back to this earth to rule and to reign. He's saying this, if you are of true faith, true faith always overcomes. If you overcome the warnings of what I'm saying here, it will prove that you have true faith. And if you do have true faith, you can guarantee yourself this, you will walk with me clothed, dressed in white, just as Christ and His angels and every picture that we see of the saints of God as we get glimpses in heaven, in history, and in Scripture, just as we see, are clothed in white. And then he says this. He says, He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Now to many, they say, Aha! See? I told you that someone could lose salvation because he said someone's name could be blotted out of the book of life. You might want to read it again. He said they will never be blotted from the book of life. A true believer will never be blotted from the book of life. He's not saying here a warning to tell us that someone can be blotted out of the book of life. He's giving us a promise confirming the exact Opposite, I will never blot anyone's name from the book of life who is in there. Why? Because it is a book full of the name of the true believers. Will never means exactly what it says. He will never. In fact, John MacArthur made a statement on this. He said this, those who teach that, that this, this particular verse teaches that someone can be erased from the book of life or lose salvation, foolishly turn a promise into a threat. That's what many people do. They take a promise and turn it into a threat. This was never meant to be a threat. This is a word of encouragement for all of those who are true believers. He said, you can bank on this. You will be clothed in white, and you will never be blotted from the book of life. This is a promise. It's a promise of eternal security for the true believer, not a threat that one could lose salvation. Scripture is very clear on this matter. In fact, if you're going to be here Sunday, you will see this. John chapter 10, verse 27 says this, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. If he gives you eternal life once, guess how long it's going to last? Eternally. He says, I give them eternal life, and they can never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. He's talking about greater in glory at this time. He says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why is the Father greater in glory here? Because Christ's glory is veiled in His humanity. He says, I and the Father are one. He reminds them, we're one in essence. Though I am here in my humanity veiled, we are one. And what the Father says, I say. And if you're in my hand, you're in His hand. And you will never, ever perish. This is not talking about at all that someone's name could be blotted from the book of life. He's guaranteeing you that it will never be blotted from the book of life. He goes on. And he says there, he says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. 
He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He will acknowledge their name before his Father and the angels. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, something that we need to pay attention to after reading something like this. It says, Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Watch what he says in verse 26. He says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's talking about the exact same thing there. He says, if you overcome and you persevere in faith, proving that you are truly a believer, you will walk with me clothed in white. You will never have your name blotted from the book of life. You are eternally secure because that proves it is true faith. And he says, I will acknowledge you before my Father and his angels in heaven. What a promise. What a promise from God. He's saying, you prove by true faith, faith that is marked with deeds, true biblical faith. He's saying you prove by true faith that you are not ashamed of me. And because you are not ashamed of me, I will not be ashamed of you before my Father, but I will declare your name before him. What a promise in his commendation here. So what is the application to us the application is this. If we weren't in danger of this, he wouldn't have written the letter. If we weren't in danger of this, he wouldn't have said in verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear. What's the application for us? We can learn something from the church at Sardis. Number one, learn this. It doesn't matter what we think about ourselves what others think about us, what social media says about us, or what kind of Google reviews we get. He warned them, you have a reputation that you're alive. You got all the good Google reviews, but you're really dead. Because all that really matters at the end of the day, man, is this. All that really matters is what does Christ say about the church? What does he say about you? Because as individuals, we make up the whole. What does he say about you? You have just verbal claims of faith with no deeds to back up your faith. James says, dead faith. He says, you're like those at Sardis. You're dead. Even though your reputation might say something different. You know, your grandma might say something differently, right? Because your grandma says that when you were six, you prayed a little prayer and they dunked you in a tank. And so everything must be okay. But your life does not show the deeds that glorify Christ. You have an issue, don't you? Your issue is dead faith. All that matters is what does Christ say about us, about the church? Why? Because he's the one who holds the seven spirits of God, and he's the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. He is the judge. He is the head. He is almighty. He is omniscient. 
He is omnipotent. He is over all things. Amen. So many times we get content with just worrying about what everybody else thinks. That's a quick way, quick way to fall into a trap. Did you know that? What matters most is what does Christ say? Because we're going to answer to Christ ultimately and eternally. We're going to answer to Christ. If your faith is dead here today, cry out to Christ. He is the resurrection and He is the life. He will breathe new life in you this very day. Next, we must not be complacent or apathetic in our walk or in our works. We must not be complacent in our, or apathetic in our walk or in our works. If you're complacent or apathetic in your walk or in your works, it might just be proof that you don't truly know Christ. It might be that you're just lazy and backslidden. Repent this evening. Confess your sins to Him. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You must never, ever settle for just going through the motions. You know, see a church die? Settle for going through the motions. Settle for going through the motions, just doing what you do, just for the sake of doing it. Not doing what you do for the glory of Christ and for true worship toward Him, to Him. Never settle for going through the motions. And last thing, be sure of this. Deadness in our works reveals deadness in our faith. And it can breed the same in others. You find a dead pastor, I've seen many of them, you'll find a dead church. You find a dead small group leader, you find a dead small group. Deadness infiltrates. Deadness can breed more deadness. So let's conclude. Will you settle for being dead? Will you walk in the newness of life granted to those who are really in Christ? Those who are doing the good works which God has prepared in advance for them to do. Don't settle for being dead. Maybe you're that person tonight. You know your faith is dead. Cry out to Jesus. He's the only one who will save you. Maybe you're that person who says, I'm not dead, but man, I, I'm just barely alive. Cry out to Him for revival. Cry out to Him for revival. May He strengthen your spirit. May He restore you today. May you rise up. May you walk in the newness of life that Christ died for you to have. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear what he said tonight, men. Hear what he said. Oh, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I'll never fall into deadness, you're one step toward it. It's your arrogance and that's your pride. Depend upon his grace, depend upon his mercy, depend upon his strength. Trust in him and walk in him and him alone. And to God be the glory for all things. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for these men tonight who have endured your word, who are enduring this study. They may know you, know more about you, know you more intimately. God, I pray for them tonight. I pray that if this message has spoken to them, that they would be obedient 
to whatever it is that you're leading them to do. If it's salvation, Lord, I pray that you would grant it to them, that you would open their eyes to see the truth that they need Christ and that you would save them this very evening as they cry out to you for forgiveness, mercy, grace, as they repent of their sin and turn to you and you alone as Lord and Savior. God, perhaps there's the man here struggling. But I pray tonight that he would rest in you, he would trust in you, and that your spirit would empower him press on through his struggle that he would experience revival in his soul at this very moment. God, I pray for this church, this body here that you have entrusted me to lead. Lord, may you forever spur me on. May you forever breathe your life into me that that life may be contagious. Lord, never let me settle for death and complacency and apathy. May you be glorified in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we sing, in all that we preach. May you be honored. Lord Jesus, thank you for your cross. Without you, we are completely hopeless and helpless. We thank you for your sacrifice that has allowed us true faith, true repentance, and a right relationship with our Creator. We give you praise and glory for it. In your name that we pray all these things. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world. 